This is the Concast, the podcast about the Indian Constitution, the Supreme Court, and beyond. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Concast. Today, I'm very glad to have back with us Surat Patsarthi, a constitutional lawyer and writer from Chennai. Uh, Surat, thanks for coming back to the Concast. A pleasure to be back, Gautam. Uh, thank you for having me. How's it going? How's uh, how's the week been? Uh, the week's been all right. Uh, uh, I mean, last we started on a note uh, with the football last time. There's no, there's been no. <laughs> yes. And, uh, yes. <laughs> I think Arsenal are back top of the league, but uh, it, uh, I, I would have liked to have uh, recorded this, you know, soon in the back of uh, United's win over Arsenal, but uh, but here we are anyway. So. Yes, unfortunately, I, I I made it a point not to record the podcast on that week because I knew that there would be some comments given <laughs> the football themes of this podcast. But actually, I have a different analogy in mind for today's podcast, which is, um, were you ever a Tintin fan uh, growing up? Uh, no, actually, yeah. Uh, well, so uh, there, there is a Tintin in, in America and there's a scene there when uh, Tintin is going after Al Capone, the real life Al Capone. And so Al Capone sends his henchmen uh, after Tintin. And what they do is they basically tie a dumbbell around his uh, legs and uh, throw him into the into Lake Michigan. And they mess up and the dumbbell is made of wood, so it floats. Uh, anyway, that's not the point. Yes. The, the point is that, uh, that it seems to me that um, if uh, Tintin is Indian constitutional jurisprudence, then that uh, dumbbell is the essential religious practices test. <laughs> because it just it just drags everything down to the bottom of, of Lake Michigan. You know, it, it, it just degrades everything completely. Um, and uh, we have seen it in action. Um, yeah. During the whole hijab hearing. Now, this this yeah. podcast is not going to be about the hijab case, although we'll touch upon that um, as and when we need to. But it will be about this very unique Indian creature called the Essential Religious Practices Test, uh, which has over the years become the basis upon which courts consider claims that are located within the Right to Religious Freedom Articles 25, 26, and so on. Uh, so I want to begin by asking you, what exactly is the essential religious practices test and what does it entail in a case? Sure. Uh, so the essential religious practices test is basically a court created doctrine. And it's a doctrine that emanated perhaps first out of one of the earliest sort of constitutional cases that touched upon the right to freedom of religion in India in the Shirur Mutt case in 1954. And uh, before we get to sort of its origins, really, uh, what it seeks to do is that it seeks to kind of conduct an analysis on what the court deems as essential to a religious faith and then says that it is only what the court that consider uh, it's, it's only what the court considers to be essential to a uh, religious faith that is in fact protected by the constitution. Now we all know the bare text of the constitution and what articles 25 and 26 say. Article 25 protects the right to freedom of religion. It says that subject to public order, morality and health, every person is equally entitled to the freedom of conscience and the right freely to profess, practice and propagate religion. 
Now, on an application of the essential practices doctrine, what the courts will hold is that it's only those practices which the court finds to be essential to religion, which are in fact protected under the uh, broad guarantee of Article 25. So in sort of uh, in very brief terms, that is what the essential practices doctrine is. And what this means, therefore, is that if something is not essential to a faith according to the court, then that would not be protected or you, you wouldn't have a fundamental right to claim that as uh, something which is beyond uh, all manners of uh, state intervention. But of course, assuming that something is essential to faith and is in fact protected by Article 25, in theory, the state can still limit that so long as it is in the interests of public order, morality or health, or it's otherwise in the interests of social welfare and reform or, you know, including the throwing open of all Hindu religious institutions to all classes and castes of uh, people, which Article 25 to be expressly permits. Uh, but of course, uh, that's in theory. In practice, what we've seen in some cases is that when the essential practices doctrine is applied, the courts have also tended to sort of prohibit or sort of outlaw uh, rather anal uh, pieces of legislation which seek to bring about social welfare or reform on the mere pretext that this is an essential practice of religion and therefore is somehow beyond all manner of uh, state intervention. Uh, so I just have uh, two follow-up questions. Um, one is that, so when we use the word essential, what, or when the courts use the word essential, what are they saying? Are they saying that if you were to remove this practice, the religion would lose its character? What exactly does essentiality mean? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I don't think there's been one clear definition of what essentiality means. Uh, in the Shirur Mutt case, where the you know, doctrine was perhaps first mentioned, the court said that you'll have to look, in, look at the proponents of the faith itself and see whether they think that it's essential to the faith in the sense that if they believe that it's somehow intrinsic uh, to, their, to their practice of their religion and uh, something without which their faith will in some manner collapse, I suppose. Uh, if not entirely, that it would impinge on their, uh, uh, you know, practice of their faith at any rate. But since then, the uh, doctrine has sort of been transformed into something uh, which involves an analysis, really, of, uh, you know, theological texts and scriptures and customs and conventions, where the court then looks at whether this is something that is grounded in the, uh, you, you know, in the core tenets of that faith itself, or in some cases, uh, especially those cases decided by Justice Gajendra Gatkar in the 1960s, he sort of uh, sought to distinguish superstition from religious faith and said that those practices which are not grounded clearly in religious text and customs, but are rather a product of superstition, would not be essential to faith. Uh, so to answer your question, there isn't one definition of essentiality. It's really kind of deferred from case to case. But broadly, I think the courts have tended to see whether it's whether whether the practice that is uh, over which constitutional protection has been claimed is grounded in religious text and is seen by the leaders of that religion uh, or you know by the rule makers of that religion as something which is essential to the faith and of but, course the rule makers themselves you know are going to be the people who are more powerful so it, it and i will come back to this it, but this sets up this sort of almost um, a bit of a dichotomy between the, within the religion, the lawgivers, so to say, the ones who control or have power, and the ordinary believer. So the ordinary believer then, you know, has 
doesn't really have the the freedom or the liberty to interpret the the religion as they want it or as they consider uh, consider it but they have to go by what say the dominant uh, or powerful like version of it is certainly yeah yeah i i, I mean I, that that would be accurate i think yes yeah, we'll, I, I think we'll get back to that. Like, I, think, I think that really shows up, I think, very clearly in the hijab case, and, and we'll, we'll come back to that. Sure. Um, but my second question is that, so one one issue that, that has been raised by counsel in the hijab case, and I think it's an interesting one, um, is that actually the, the, in order to claim the protection of Article 25, I don't need to demonstrate that something is essential to, uh, you know, religion. Uh, that is a kind of second level inquiry that comes into when you're considering the state's power to to regulate. Um, so if there is no question of public order, morality or health that is in play, um, then I don't have to show that something is essential. Then I just need to show that it's a religious belief um, and uh, and that will give me protection under Article 25. So it, it, what do you think of that argument? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's a fair enough argument to make and I, and I would... Uh, you know, I would think that that argument would need to be uh, treated as uh, valid in an ideal scenario. Uh, but the problem in India really stems from the fact that uh, I, I'm not quite sure it's backed by precedent, especially the line of judgments that followed Shirurman, where uh, we take it as sort of the law today that something will enjoy protection under Article 25 and indeed under Article 26 if it's a claim made by a religious denomination. That it's a that you have a right to religious freedom over a practice only if that practice is essential to the faith in question. So it's not merely a question of uh, you know there having to be a necessity to bring about social welfare or reform or the state's action being grounded in any one of those uh, in any one of those requirements, but rather it's the absence of a right itself. And the way the these articles have been interpreted through the 1960s right up to uh, you know the present hearing in the hijab case at least on my uh, sort of understanding is that it's only those practices that are ultimately concluded to be essential to faith or essential to religion that in fact enjoy constitutional protection and if that is the reading then it's only if if, if you're seeking to argue that the right to wear the hijab flows from article 25 and the right to religious freedom then that right would exist only if the wearing of that of the hijab is essential to Islam. And uh, to, uh, of course, establishing that is a matter of evidence. And uh, as we'll probably sort of go over the course of this podcast, it's a difficult thing for a court exercising rich jurisdiction to do, uh, whether it's the High Court or the Supreme Court on a special leave petition, uh, simply because the uh, procedure that is involved in these kinds of matters does not involve a rigorous fact-finding exercise. Uh, wh- whether it should is a separate matter. And I think that's the that's the real problem with the doctrine as it stands today. Uh, and, and, and that's why we need to look beyond this doctrine and try and look at alternatives. And, uh, and, I, and I think it's regrettable that it's uh, that this doctrine has really sort of emanated out of these line of judgments because it doesn't have any grounding either in the text of the constitution or in the debates uh, involved in the constituent assembly during the framing of the constitution you know or indeed really anywhere else and uh, you know when we get to where this doctrine sort of originated from and the reasons for its uh, origin we'll see that uh, it's really not grounded uh, 
in the kind of with the kind of backing that uh, constitutional law doctrines ordinarily ought to be backed by i mean uh, you know this the point about evidence and you know this is a good one because you know in the hijab case one striking thing is you not nobody's hearing from the affected parties themselves right like what does the hijab mean for them why do they want to wear it nobody is really you know paying attention to that and it reminds me of again i think this, this famous case um, the um, the original mohammad hanif qureshi case um, regarding cow slaughter where uh, i think very famously the uh, the supreme court took evidence from if i remember correctly thakur das bhargav um, about whether cow slaughter was essential to to um, you know islamic faith or not so it, you know very sort of strange um uh way of going about evidence uh, in these kinds of cases yeah, in but fact, I think, even yeah. even in seshmal's case where the question of uh, you know hereditary priesthoods is concerned and whether it's uh, whether it has to be in accordance with the agamas or not they they again took uh, you know took expert got an expert witness and uh, you know had had him file an affidavit again it's they're not subject to cross examination so then it becomes a it becomes very difficult uh, to really kind of uh, arrive at uh, a clear and cogent way of uh, arriving at uh, facts and concluding on facts yeah yeah and i mean the sabrimala judgment as well you know you could say it's a progressive outcome but again it's a, the people who wanted to enter the temple are not the ones you're hearing from so i think it's a it's a problem like across cases regardless of the outcome of the cases and the quality of constitutional reasoning in them um but i want to you know come to the point you made about you know how this doctrine is not grounded in the constitutional text because not only is it not grounded in the constitutional text the text does not say freedom to practice the essential parts of a religion you know it doesn't say that this doctrine isn't applied to the best of my knowledge in any other jurisdiction that recognizes a right to religious freedom um in fact if you look at the uk the us canada south africa Kenya basically i mean if you look at all the jurisdictions we normally look at when we are comparing what you find is a pretty uniform test which is effectively a subjective test so what the court looks for is um a prior history and a consistency of behavior to establish if a religious belief or a practice is a sincerely held belief or practice so it really depends entirely upon uh you know the believers conduct and what the believer manifests through their conduct and and it, and the idea is that you want to weed out purely opportunistic uh, and fake claims and to do that you then go into like you know the history of conduct but it's not whether the practice has a certain status in the religion it's what the practice means to the believer um, we don't do that under the erp test um but i think then raises the question that you know this unique creature of indian jurisprudence why does it exist and what is the problem that it's trying to address i think that's where the origins bit comes in right so if you could tell us a bit about that yeah i mean i think the word essentially religious was uh, perhaps uh, i mean used i mean it, it's possibly derived from one of ambedkar's uh, speeches in the constituent assembly i think you've written about it uh, uh gotham in the past and uh, it also finds mention in uh, justice chandrachud's uh, concurring opinion in the shabrimala case where ambedkar was sort of striving to distinguish the religious from the secular because his sort of entire point was that everything in india 
is in some manner or the other linked to religion. And I think even Alladi Krishnaswamy makes a similar statement uh, in the assembly. And uh, what Ambedkar says, and I, and I think I can just sort of read that portion. He says, the religious conceptions in this country are so vast that they cover every aspect of life from birth to death. I do not think it is possible to accept a position of that sort. We ought to strive hereafter to limit the definition of religion in such a manner that we shall not extend beyond belief and such rituals as may be connected with ceremonials which are essentially religious. It is not necessary that laws relating to tenancy or laws relating to succession should be governed by religion. So what he was seeking to do perhaps was to draw a distinction between the religious and the secular and argue that the state should be allowed should be allowed to intervene in matters that are connected to religion but are not essentially religious by their own nature. Uh, and in Shirur Mutt's case, which is really the first, I think, big judgment that the Supreme Court delivered on religious freedom, the court was again seeking to distinguish between the religious and the secular because it was concerned less with Article 25 and more with Article 26 because the uh, the challenge there was to the uh, Madras Hindu Religious and yeah. Endowments Act. And the legislation, as we know, the, one of the broad objectives of the legislation was to regulate the uh, sort of the functioning of religious institutions and mutts and temples. And uh, the claim made was that the denominational right of the Shirur Mutt was being violated. And uh, there was excessive interference in their in, 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 in the management of their affairs by the state of Madras as it was. And the court was concerned with Article 26B, which basically says that every religious denomination, subject of course again to public order, morality and health, has the right to manage its own affairs in matters of religion. So the question is, what is a matter of religion? And the court there wanted to distinguish between religious and secular and said that whatever is considered as an essential aspect of religion alone would be a matter of religion and everything else would be secular and would be something over which the state has some sort of carte blanche to uh, regulate it in any manner that it thinks fit. But what happened since then, and you know, including in uh, the Muhammad Hanif Qureshi case, which you touched upon and uh, to the line of judgments, which uh, Justice Gajendra Gatkar delivered in uh, Shastri, Yagna Purush, Shastri, then uh, uh, the Durga, Darga Committee Ajmer, then uh, Tilkayat Sri Govindarji was the state of Rajasthan and all these judgments. The court st started determining whether a practice, you know, to decide whether a practice is religious in nature. It was also looking at whether it was essential or integral to that religion. And it was applying this test to Article 25 as well and not merely to 26. So the idea of allowing a religious community or, a or you know, individuals to define for themselves what they deem to be essential to their religion went out of the window and that autonomy which you know i think which is really the basis of articles 25 and 26 in many ways uh gave way to uh you know was was sort of ceded to an external authority in this case to a secular court to sit on judgment and adopt a you know sort of the uh, adopt theological authority really and decide for us what would be essential to faith and uh, you know one of the most famous instances, of course, is the uh, case concerning the Anandamargis. Mm. And uh, this was a case, uh, uh, you know, with respect to the Thandava dance. Uh, 
and the book written by the religion's founder this prabhat ranjan sarkar itself says that this dance is indispensable to the faith but the court says that it's not right mm-hmm. on the basis of an application of this test uh, so so that's so that's sort of the you know kind of uh, path that i think the essential religious practices test really took over time and perhaps it wasn't the intention of uh, some of the earliest judgments perhaps it wasn't the intention of the shirur mat judgment to uh, create a doctrine of this kind but i think it also flows from a lack of clarity uh, you know i mean I, i think sometimes we like to laud our earliest judgments as being models of clarity which they sometimes aren't and uh, you know i read the shirur mat judgment a few times and it's uh, baffling to me why some of the things that are said in it had to be said at all and uh, it ought to have been capable of being resolved in a much narrower i think reading of the constitution uh, rather than get into this whole uh, sort of uh, distinction between the essentially religious and uh, non religious or the essentially religious and the secular yeah i mean so the anand margi's case is actually interesting because um, it comes to the supreme court twice right the first time it comes to the court um, you know there is no evidence to show that the dance is essential to the religion so yeah. the court says you know too bad um, you know there's we had no evidence then they the anandmargis go back and then they write they put that into the book right so then they they kind of it that that book and putting the dance into the book as being essential is a direct response yeah. to the supreme court judgment and then this round 2 and the supreme court says well i wait you know it's there in the book but we're still not going to hold it as essential yeah. <laughs> um, really i think shows up the arbitrariness of um, of the test and uh, i think yeah you are also right about um the test not necessarily being you know um, made a, as part of the shirur mat judgment because i think in the shirur mat judgment there is still a tension between the what is essentially religious which means as opposed to secular uh, as something that is takes the cloak of religion but is really secular say like law of marriage or inheritance or civil rights uh, which was ambedkar's original idea and an essentially essential religious practice um, i mean that's the right totem like uh, you know how should funds be allocated from a temple for the purposes of conduct of certain religious ceremonies now the, the conduct of the ceremony itself is religious in nature but uh, the question is will the allocation of funds for the conduct of that ceremony be religious or secular and that's sort of the tension that i think shirur mat was seeking to resolve perhaps to a exactly and this whole shift to essential uh, religious practice then actually comes in the arawat high court's judgment in ram prasad seth versus state of up considering bigamy um, which is a few years after and that's where you actually for the first time see the phrase essential part of in this case the hindu religion um, and then that then becomes the basis of this shift over time which you just highlighted in the course to students where we go from the constitutional test being to demarcate the zone of what is religious and what is secular uh, to being determining what is essential to a religion now one argument that scholars have made is that the reason why this test exists and i think it addresses a question that many people asked on twitter when i announced this podcast which is that you know why 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 this test um, is actually that if you didn't have this test then what the court would need to do would be that it would need to de- declare certain clearly horrendous bad practices such as say 
prohibition of um, prohibition of dalits from entering temples as in the um, venkat ramana devaru case and other similar practices it would have to announce that these practices are in a clash with the constitution and that the constitution is supreme and therefore these practices are invalid which sets up a zero sum game between religion and the constitution instead what the court has done is it's chosen a more diplomatic way of doing things which is to say actually if you really look closely uh, this so called practice isn't essential to the religion at all uh, and in that way the what the court does is instead of announcing a clash between the constitution and religion it basically is able to harmonize uh the religion and the constitution and weed out these unconstitutional practices simply by saying that they're not really part of the religion at all and so what ultimately you have is a progressive religion and a progressive constitution that are walking in in lockstep and you don't have the zero sum game uh that's the argument certain scholars have made uh, so what do you think about that uh, you know as a justification for this test Yeah I mean I, I just want to start with this Venkatramana Devaru since you uh, mentioned it and it's and it's interesting because uh, uh, you know there that arose out of a clash between rights under article 25 and article 26 so to speak or at least a professed right under article 26 and uh, this was a case of course of a temple which was uh, dedicated for the Gauda Saraswat uh, Brahmins and uh, it was their claim that uh, Dalits would not be allowed to Uh, worship at the temple and they they asserted their right under article 26b where uh, they said that they are a religious denomination that this was a denominational temple and that they had the right to manage their own affairs and matters of religion now the court actually did conduct this test of essentiality and it came to a conclusion which uh, that that this was essential to their religious faith right and it said that uh, it was a right protected under article 26b in fact the right to exclude uh, people from other castes and then it said that this right was clashing with the law which was under challenge in that case which was uh, uh, which was of course a law that was brought about to bring about social welfare and reform which was to open up hindu temples to all castes and the court said that that law which was made was in furtherance of social welfare and reform that it was a law made under article 252b and that because there was a clash between the two these two articles needed to be harmoniously read and that so long as a law is made for social welfare and reform a right under article 26b could be limited and actually if we look at the text of the constitution it leads to a this sort of leads to a little bit of difficulty right because uh what's interesting is that while article 25 is made subject to public order morality and health it is also made subject to all other rights guaranteed under part 3 whereas article 26 is made only subject to public order morality and health uh so it's it's really this sort of i think unnecessary uh analysis on the basis of this essentiality test which even led to the court having to see whether this uh, these two articles needed to be harmoniously read or not which they perhaps could not be done on a bare sort of textual uh, reading of the two articles and the better approach in such a case would have been what you suggested which is to say that look there's no need to test the essentiality of a practice but on the other hand what you need to do is to see whether a particular practice otherwise excludes individuals 
from from the religious fold whether it has the uh, effect of impinging on their basic dignity on their access to basic goods and this is something that uh, you've written about extensively in the past and uh, uh, justice chandrachud's concurring opinion in the shabrimala case also refers to and then thereafter see what is protected under articles 25 and 26 because th- this would be in consonance or would maintain a i, I think a broad fidelity to uh, what the constitution's larger aim and vision is uh, we have on the one hand article 17 which speaks about a prohibition of untouchability and it uses the word untouchability in all forms and which then would mean that it would uh, necessarily override any claim either under article 25 or 26 and the moment you have any practice which is exclusionary in nature and you know such as for example in the case of uh, the venkatrama devaru case which effectively prohibited dalits from worshiping at the shrine that would certainly be in breach of article 17 and uh, that that would have been a much easier way for the court to resolve it rather than uh, you know not go down that line and as you say sort of take almost a non confrontational uh, approach to interpretation and say that uh, uh, you know these two articles will be harmoniously read and because it's a law made in the interest of social welfare and reform it would apply to both now what if a law had not been made assumed a state had not legislated for this what would have been the ultimate judgment in venkatrama devaru it would have perhaps meant that uh, the uh, gauda saraswats would have uh, continued to enjoy their uh, claim under article 26b because there would have been no law under article 252b so we also have to look at that eventuality and that's why i think this sort of anti exclusion principle which you propose which uh, justice chandrachud has uh, relied on in the concurring opinion in the shabrimala case is something uh, worthy of consideration in the future and and i think it would maintain a fidelity to the uh, broad vision of the constitution i guess the i mean then the conflict the real contest then would be uh, what kinds of exclusion uh, attract constitutional scrutiny and i'm thinking about all these cases from abroad involving for example women priests right so if um, if 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 the religion says that you can't have women priests who are ordained um and you take it to court and, and in foreign countries the court has said look this is a matter internal to religion we can't interfere uh, and the basic idea being that you know your disadvantage that is being caused to women by not making them priests is limited to being a religious disadvantage it's not spilling over into the broader social domain um i think there's a pending case in from tamil nadu right about archakas if i remember correctly which is raising some similar issues so i guess like the court will still need to resolve very difficult and thorny issues uh with respect to because i mean look i think everyone agrees that you can't constitutionalize religion right like you can't you can't say that every single religious practice has to meet uh the constitutional tests of of equality equal protection or of that because that's not how it works um religion is not state and every religion will have practices that you know that people believe in and follow but which may not meet your strict constitutional standards um, the key question in india would be that uh, what kinds of practices would trigger constitutional scrutiny um, and of course I mean, the argument is that those practices whose effect spills over from the purely religious to you know the public sphere civil rights that was of course the whole issue 
in the uh, Sardar Sayedna boycott case, where the argument was made that that social boycott might be triggered by the religious head and might involve religious considerations, but its effects, you know, are really in the civil domain. Your access to common burial grounds, dining, and so on. Um, so I guess that would be the, the the determining factor, and that would itself be very, I think, controversial, and you know, would be, I guess, difficult for the court to navigate. Yeah, I think those are very hard questions, uh, and uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, in the Sardar Saidna case, uh, Justice Iyengar used the word reforming a religion, or used the words reforming a religion out of its existence, and uh, you know, you obviously can't uh, possibly apply the ordinary tests of you know proportionality or your reasonable classification tests under Article 14 or your test of manifest arbitrariness to uh, matters of faith. And uh, if if you were to go down that path, then there would be, you know, you would possibly be reforming religions out of existence. And that is certainly can't be seen as the uh, aim or objective of the constitution. And I think we know that it doesn't work, right? Like you can try, it's not going to work. So why why get into a battle that historically has only led to the kind of backlash you don't want, right? Uh, It's much better to to apply a, a test that, you know, recognizes that religion is a certain kind of force in our societies and you know, then asks what do we do next, given that fact. Absolutely. And I think, uh, which is why uh, possibly the uh, kinds of exclusion that you're, that we are speaking about will have to necessarily spill over into the public sphere. It will have to be something which is uh, which impinges on, you know, dignity in some deep-rooted manner. And, uh, uh, by, uh, and, and not merely uh, a violation of a of, a, of, of any other fundamental right under the constitution. I mean, it can't be a simple violation of an Article 14 claim or an Article 19 claim or, you know, any of the other fundamental rights, because that that, that would simply not work, as you say. And uh, the, but the question then is, what are those? And, and I think that will certainly have to be decided on a, uh, you know, case by case basis. You can't have, uh, and I think in so far as we, you want to create a bright line rule for something of the sort, it would have to, uh, mean social ostracization or you know notion even involves notions of purity and pollution and things of that sort uh then i then i think again uh that's a place where the state will have to step in where courts will have to step in because that would uh i i think that would be in breach of the constitutional vision and certainly would be in breach of the kind of transformative vision which uh, you may which you've spoken about before so the moment I think you have these sort of orders which are uh, on the basis of purity and pollution or on the basis of ostracization, then I think it would impinge dignity in a manner which would lead to exclusion from social life. And when that happens, I don't think you can claim protection or you should be able to claim protection under Article 25 uh, because it would it, it would because our, the words used in Article 25 are subject to public order, morality and health. And I think morality, again, it comes down to how we define morality, right? I mean, uh, it goes back to this question of whether it should be constitutional morality or societal morality. And, uh, and and we'll have to go down the path of having that discussion again in terms of what is constitutional morality and where that line needs to be drawn. Yeah, so, I mean, so, so far we've discussed the problems of the ERP test when it comes to certain kinds of harmful practices, practices where believers are being discriminated against or are being persecuted and so on. 
Um, and we have, we have talked about the problems and generally the larger issue with the RP test, which involves the court pronouncing on certain theological questions. Different set of problems arises uh, where it's actually not about uh, persecution or discrimination, but it's about the adherence of the faith making a claim against the state, against the state, where the state seeks to proscribe or to prohibit or otherwise regulate a certain practice, which is, of course, at the heart of the dispute around the hijab. And there, I think the ERP test creates a very different set of problems. And to my mind, and I'd you know, love to have your views on this, the biggest problem is this, that I asked you in the beginning, what exactly does essentiality mean, right? And one thing that the courts have held in a few cases is that if something is directory or permissive, then it clearly can't be essential because the religion's character would not change if someone was to do or not do it, right? So if you're allowed to do something, then it can't clearly be an essential practice. So what follows is that therefore it must be a, a compulsion, it must be an, a religious command, a diktat. Uh, that you have to follow, you know, and and if that if you wouldn't follow it, the religion would be shaken up, like it it, it wouldn't be the religion anymore. And what that has led to is this, I think, very strange uh, situation where Article 25 has become not a right to religious freedom but a right to religious compulsion. So what you see is that in the hijab case, council who rest their arguments on the ERP test actually make arguments that deprive the women in this case, the ability to exercise a choice or to have agency, because the entire argument is that uh, this is a religious command, it's in the Holy Quran, uh, there is no choice, you have to follow it. And so therefore, the, the women become like sort of passive, um, they become sort of almost, I mean, I wouldn't say victims, but like, you know, they have to follow it. Um, and that, of course, is in stark contrast with the whole idea of religious freedom, right? Yeah, it's it's, a, it's yeah. a right, it's a choice. Um, and so the ERP test is not only a problem in the sense that judges are taking calls on things that they're not equipped to take calls on, which is, of course, the overarching problem. But in its very nature, um, it privileges the deprivation of agency in religion instead of celebrating it. No, you're absolutely right in the sense that it has the sort of counterintuitive uh, kind of uh, effect of virtually diminishing freedom and eliminating freedom because uh, you're effectively saying that uh, your freedom of religion is dependent on what your religious faith demands and, and, and that you have no right to decide which portions of that faith uh, you know, you want to follow and which of those you may not want to follow and which itself is an aspect of uh, freedom, right? In the sense that if if I, you know, if a, if a person was, were a follower of a certain faith, uh, she should have the right to decide for herself which aspects of that faith she wants to follow and which of those she doesn't want to follow. And that and that itself is protected by Article 25 or ought to be protected by Article 25 at any rate. And the moment you have this ERP test and that ability to take that call and that freedom to take that call is sort of uh, extinguished and uh, that uh, and, and that's clearly a big problem with the ERP test. I'm not sure that this problem has necessarily cropped up in the past in terms of some of the cases that the court has decided nothing immediately springs to mind but it's certainly the case here and we can see that happening in the uh, arguments over the hijab and uh, which is why I think 
we need to sort of go back perhaps to a test uh, or at least create a test where an assertion by a person that a certain practice is a product of their faith you know whether it's a product of their religious faith or a product of their conscience is taken on its face value and so long as it is you know i mean so long as a basic threshold of evidence is met it's taken as something that is a product of their right to uh, right guaranteed under article 25 yeah, i mean the genuine and sincere belief test that's yeah, followed genuine across and the world belief test. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and use that to then decide on whether it's otherwise uh, you know restricted by uh, one of the other grounds contained in 25 which is whether it's hit by public order morality or health or if there's a law that's genuinely made in the interests of uh, social welfare or reform or to you know regulate the secular activities that are associated with religious practice and then see whether it uh, uh, impinges on the right or not and uh, which is where the which is what the anti exclusion test would seek to do right which is to virtually sort of presume that uh, these practices are are protected and then thereafter see whether it leads to exclusion of uh, exclusion in any deep rooted uh, manner where which in in the manner in which we discussed in you know the earlier question and uh, and then arrive at a conclusion but but this erp test again i mean I, I, this is a problem that hasn't been highlighted enough i think which is that it has the uh, sort of inverse effect of uh, reducing and virtually eliminating freedom in many ways because if you're now going to assume the court concludes for example that hijab is essential to islam and to the faith then does that then mean that those women who have chosen to exercise agency and you know who do not wear the hijab are somehow violating the tenets of their faith because the supreme court has said that this is uh, an is this is essential to the religion so that's the kind of uh, i think problem that the test really leads to that's the whole thing right because what this test does is that it basically throws the dissenter to the wolves right so it it um, the moment you get into this essentiality and as you said in the beginning if you if if you decide essentiality based on the tech religious texts holy books um you know those holy books and those texts have been ultimately ultimately are the product of you know the dominant interpreters of a religion right um, and uh, and so uh, and and in, in fact not just that i mean you could say okay like the so it's not just say okay like so in in this case for for instance when you are looking at something like the quran uh, what you see in this case is that both sides have conflicting interpretations of what the quran has to say about the hijab um, and then you know you then turn to the official interpreters right like the the people who hold power in the religion uh, and then what does and this has been in fact a problem that has been there with us from pre independence so you know when the british began to codify personal law they took the advice of you know the powerful religious people and scholars have you know shown how the effect of this was to completely sort of ossify what was till then dynamic religious practice both in hinduism and in islam but that that apart so what this does is basically it it completely negates the possibility of cultural and religious dissent and it presses the court into taking the side of the more powerful people you know within the religion and i think that is sort of almost again an inverse of what the court should be doing so if there is like a genuine say, religious uh, case of religious, religious dissent and the dissenters are being in some way persecuted boycotted or so on uh, the court should be taking their side right they're in the side of the less powerful absolutely, absolutely. Uh, they are more powerful 
this sort of harks to that, uh, you know, the paper written by Professor Madhavi Sundar, I think, right? Uh, yes. Where he speaks about cultural descent and how uh, the moment you have the autonomy of the group sort of being favored over the autonomy of the individual, then your traditionally uh, subordinate members of the community would be the ones who suffer, you know, uh, women, children, sexual minorities. And the, I mean, these are the, the this is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm taking from her uh, yeah. paper and uh, where uh, you should encourage cultural dissent to the extent that you can, because that is an aspect of religious freedom as well under Article 25. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think we've addressed quite a, a few of the questions that were asked. So, you know, just Chaitanya Singh's question, about an alternative approach to the ERP test, what detour can we take as a country? So, you know, that we've discussed that. Um, and, um, you know, uh, what is a more viable alternative from the quote at Bridges Matrix the last same same answer. Constitutional morality by Nitin, you, you've addressed that. Um, perils of constitutional courts deciding ERP by Harshit, you've addressed that. Um, so we, yeah, m- most of the questions you've addressed, I think there's one interesting point, and I want to, you know, uh, just uh, bring that to your attention. So um, this is a, a point by um, uh, by uh, Gyanu at Mal Foucault, a good, good name. Um, why do we need ERP tests provided that Article 25 very well protects the freedom of conscience? Religion can flow from conscience only. Why does it have to be strictly religious? So to kind of rephrase the argument, um, what if I was to just make a conscience-based claim under Article 25 that would spare me from, you know, uh, having to demonstrate essentiality. And uh, before I, you know, ask you about that, I think, and I want to make this additional point and then ask you about both things. I think the answer to this question is in part, you know, revealed by a close look at what's been happening in the hijab case. And one thing that to me is very striking is the really remarkable hostility uh, that the bench has exhibited towards the conscience argument, towards the free speech argument, basically towards every argument that is not an ERP argument. And, you know, this is the caveat that the live tweets about hearings can be misleading. Yes. You know, they don't always capture nuances. Yes. We don't have a judgment yet. Yes. But instead of even looking at what's happening at the Supreme Court, if you look at the judgment that is on appeal in the Karnataka High Court, right? Yeah. Uh, you can see this sort of, uh, uh, you, you, th- because the argument was raised on the right to conscience. And well, I think, you know, I think with respect to the High Court, you could, when I mean, there is a case to be made that, that the petitioners led with the ERP test. So, I mean, yeah. I can kind of maybe see what's happening there, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I still think, of course, that the court should have engaged more closely with other arguments than it did. But the difference being that in the Supreme Court, appellants have led with everything else. The ERP test comes comes in much later, uh, you know, uh, in the hearings. And what I saw at least was that the Supreme Court, the bench was almost at certain times fighting, you know, with, with the council when they made um, these conscience-based arguments. And there is a marked difference in the bench's attitude when the ERP test is raised. Of course, they may not accept it, you know, finally in the judgment. But it was striking to see that the only time in this hearing when the judges felt comfortable, uh, you know, uh, and felt like they were on known and familiar terrain was when counsel made the ERP argument. And so I guess, I mean, so of course, the first question is, why can't it be 
you know, conscience, which is the question that that has been put to us on Twitter. And the second, I think, issue is that, look, we can't, to actually do away with the ERP test, you need to have a larger bench, seven, nine years, whatever. Um, but given the way judges seem to want to cling on to the ERP test, you know, both in this case, in the triple dollar case and so on, you know, how do we accomplish that shift where judges can be perhaps persuaded to look at other arguments as well? Yeah, so, I mean, on conscience, as I was saying, in the Karnataka High Court judgment, uh, of course, as you say, uh, you know, the council perhaps led with the RP test in Karnataka, but arguments were raised on conscience. And the, uh, you know, High Court actually draws a very strange distinction uh, from the Bijoy Emanuel uh, judgment, the famous judgment in Bijoy Emanuel, where uh, the rights of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses was at stake. And uh, there, of course, uh, the court held that as long as the students believed out of a sense of conscience that they should not participate in the recital of the national anthem, then that right would be protected under Article 25. And it could only be limited in the interests of public order, morality or health. And that right to freedom of conscience was as much a part of Article 25, and it didn't require any sort of essentiality argument uh, attached to it at all. And uh, the Karnataka High Court, however, sort of brushes this aside. And almost concludes, and in fact does conclude, that any assertion made on the basis of a right of conscience is in fact an assertion made on the basis of religious freedom and would therefore be subject to the test of uh, essential practices. Uh, so according to the court, even if you said that, even if a woman uh, said that she was wearing the hijab as a matter of conscience, it would still have to be seen only as a case of religious freedom and the test of essentiality would have to be applied. And I think on this aspect, the Supreme Court would perhaps certainly have to examine the Karnataka High Court's ruling and perhaps uh, reconsider whether a claim based on conscience will need to uh, be tested on the ERP uh, analysis at all. And I would certainly think that it should not be because uh, Article 25 is not merely available to followers of faith, it's available to non-followers, it's available, as we discussed earlier, to dissenters within a faith. Uh, it can be available to very many people who might believe in certain aspects of a faith, but might not in certain other aspects and so forth. Uh, so if something is pleaded to be based out of conscience, then I think that will have to be tested on its uh, own right. Uh, but I'm not sure to what extent the written pleadings in the hijab case make this out, right? Like we don't know uh, to what extent the affidavits filed by the petitioners in fact claim that this is a matter of conscience. Uh, perhaps there isn't enough uh, evidence that has been led in on that aspect. So uh, so we, we, in any case, we can't sort of speculate uh, on that. But uh, to answer the question, yes, I think if it's a claim made out of conscience, it shouldn't require the essential practices test. But then the moment a claim is made out of conscience and it has some link to religion, the court will then necessarily get drawn into the test in some way or the other. And uh, and I think that uh, upshot can be avoided only if the ERP test is consigned uh, to history by a larger bench. And uh, we know that uh, on the basis of the review petitions filed in the Shabrimala case, a nine-judge bench was in fact constituted. It framed questions uh, to be answered and then uh, abandoned uh, those uh, you know, settings 
couple of years back. Uh, so perhaps that nine judge bench will be reconstituted at some point in the future. And uh, because the uh, supposed objective of that nine judge bench was not to review the Shabrimala judgment as much as answer those questions that were framed, including really the question of whether the ERP test needs to be uh, you know, continued or not. It didn't frame the question in those explicit terms, but it spoke about, uh, I think one of the questions that was framed is what are matters of religion that are protected under Article 25? So I think yeah, in each, of, in each of the cases that are supposedly going to be impacted by it, for example, uh, female genital mutilation, uh, Goldrukh Gupta, the Parsi Parsi wife case, and so on, yeah, all centrally centrally concern the ERP test and the limits, or you know, the 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 interaction between constitutional rights and religious practices. Yeah. See, I, I mean, uh, and I think at some point the court will have to reconsider it, uh, whether it chooses to cling on to it or not. We'll have to see after the nine judge bench takes a call on it. And, and until then, I think uh, we have no option. I mean, court, judges possibly have no option but to decide in the test. I mean, there was that interesting judgment out of uh, Kerala, right? I mean, not from the high court, from one of the uh, from the district judiciary, which uh, was reported in live law. Uh, yeah, just I think two days ago. I haven't had time to read it yet. Uh, very yeah, recent, right? read the judgment either but from a, a reading of the report uh, what it, it I think arose out of a civil suit and uh, it was a matter of excommunication and uh, a, a, a full-fledged trial was conducted and uh, on the basis of that the court concluded that uh, you know this was in fact not an essential aspect of the faith and therefore was that that excommunication could not be, uh, uh, you know, lawfully done uh, by the community in question there, and uh, I, I think that would be an interesting judgment to read. The reason I, I, I you know, highlight this judgment is that uh, often these questions of what is an essential aspect of faith requires that kind of analysis. Right? It requires a trial, and uh, it's something for civil courts perhaps to be engaged with uh, more than writ courts, and. Uh, the regrettable aspect of the test, I think, is that uh, uh, we've had courts exercising jurisdiction under Article 226, the High Courts, or the Supreme Court on either under 32 or sitting on SLP under 136 have had to kind of examine these uh, factual questions without, in fact, having had the opportunity of conducting a trial. And that's, again, one of the aspects uh, of the test, which, which I think is uh, not really in keeping with what a public law court would perhaps uh, really require to do. And uh, that might require reconsideration as well by the nine judge bench. And I, I, but, but you know, we've seen again, even with the anti-exclusion test or with any other test, these are always going to be thorny questions to answer. And uh, <laughs> I think uh, even if this test were to be abandoned in favor of a, a test such as the anti-exclusion test, we'll still be having a number of these podcasts and number of articles uh, <laughs> in terms of <laughs> trying to analyze what fits in and what doesn't. And, and that's what makes some of this uh, quite interesting and fascinating, really. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I honestly, the ERP test, um, it's been criticized since it came into being. As early as 1970, people are writing critiques of it. It's been 52 years. It's still with us. You know, so it really seems to be one of those doctrines that are just you know everyone can see what's wrong with it i think i think even judges know that you know it's it's just not sustainable but there's just this 
incredible amount of inertia um, in, in just changing it. And I think that... I, I, I mean, I, every judge knew it except Justice Gajendra Gatko, who I think was sort of uh, taking, sort of, who was almost enjoying the process, right? Of, uh, well, I mean, so it's a well-known fact. His whole deal was to try and, you know, reform Hinduism and make it more progressive and enlightened. And he was, of course, a Sanskrit scholar. And so, you know, his, he, had a, he had a certain mission to, yeah. um, to, to weed out uh, regressive practices um, from the faith and and turn it turn it into like an enlightened sort of religion, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, so you know, like in, at least now, I think everyone can see can see what's wrong with it, um, but uh, it's just uh, it's just hard to change, and I and I think that it it finally just needs that one judgment, you know, um, uh, something like a Keshavananda type of a judgment where the court says, look. We are going to make a clean break with the past on this. We have messed up for a very long time. Like it's just time to start afresh. And you know, I think I think that has to happen at some point, and and then we maybe can kind of free ourselves from from that uh, dumbbell that's dragging us down into Lake Michigan, and maybe you know uh, float again. But uh, thanks so much for um, for taking out your time once more, and um, we'll have you back when the judgment comes out, which should come out, I think. It, it it will come out in the next two or three weeks because um, Justice Hemant Gupta is retiring on October 16th. So um, so we will have a judgment uh, that I'm sure will say things about the ERP test uh, pretty soon. So once that happens, you know, we'll we'll do a follow up and we'll we'll drag you back here. Yeah, thanks, thank you, Gautam. It was a pleasure. Thank you, thanks for having me. Thanks so much, and see you soon. See you. podcast about the Indian Constitution, the Supreme Court, and beyond. This podcast is hosted by the Indian Constitutional Law and Philosophy blog, so if you liked it, do head over there and subscribe. Thank you once again, and until next time, take it easy. Thank you.